Hello and welcome to YHTV's nominated show, Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 86. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzama, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Good morning to you, Dr. Woolman. Good morning to you, Christina. How's your day? Fantabulous. Yep. Yes, yes. The sun was rising as the moon was setting in the same sky at the same time today. I love that. Uh, it's great to know that this is the middle of winter. Is it the middle of winter? <laughs> Being in Southern California, I can never tell. <laughs> yeah. Uh, many blessings to all of you that choose to live in colder places and stay there. <laughs> and and love the seasons. I honor you for that. Today, today, Christina, I'm very excited. We have a special guest, Dr. Lynn Cagle, who is one of the world's authorities on autism. And this is something that uh, I think we all have heard a lot about and need to know more about. So greetings, everybody, and welcome to Magical Medical Tour. <clears throat> I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your guide along with Christina today as we travel another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy searching for optimal health. And uh, today, as I said, we're going to be speaking uh, with Dr. Lynn Cagle, who is going to tell us about uh, a disorder or a spectrum of disorders that have uh, become very prominent in our world today that weren't necessarily prominent a while ago. This is going to be very interesting, and I know there will probably be a number of people wanting to ask some questions. How would they go about that? Oh, at any time during the show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Be sure to click submit so we can share it with our guest. And uh, uh, even after the show is over, you can feel free to continue to ask those questions, and we'll make sure to forward those questions to our guest, our Dr. Woolman and uh, send you back the answers. Thank you, Doc. You're welcome. Lynn Cagle, Dr. Cagle, is the clinical director of the Cagle Autism Center and the director of the Eli and Edith L. Broad Center for Asperger's Research. Mm -hmm. We've heard both of those terms a lot, but I don't know that everyone really understands them, including a lot of people in the uh, medical world. So, I think after today, a uh, lot more people will have a great understanding. So I would like to introduce Dr. Cagle at this time and bring her to our viewing audience. Greetings, Lynn. Good morning. Good morning, oh. Lynn. Thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So Lynn, as the medical guide, I usually try to tell our viewers the direction we'll be going. And I'm hoping today first to learn a little bit about you and why you got to where you were and why you do what you do. And then I really want to get into the subject of autism and the autism spectrum disorders uh, to find out a good definition, a working definition. We want to find out causes of the problem, diagnosis of the problem, treatment therapies, and what the future holds potentially for us. How's that sound to you? Sounds wonderful. All right, so let's let's find out a little bit about uh, you first. When did you get interested in going into psychology? Uh, what were the paths that brought you to that, the influences, et cetera? And then how did you come into the specific area of the autism spectrum disorders? Share with well, us. Well, 
Okay. Um, I actually started, it's kind of an unusual way that I got involved with it. I was visiting Camarillo State Mental Hospital, which at that time had a lot of children with autism. And I was with one of my childhood friends who was a psychologist and she said, oh, why don't you meet my friend, Bob Cagle? So I met Bob, who's now my husband, but wasn't then. And Mm -hmm. she, so we, um, started talking and I said I wanted to volunteer at the hospital to work with the children that were there and he said oh we're trying to get rid of the hospital it's not a great place for kids why don't you help us at UCSB so I worked there for a number of years and I got my master's degree in speech therapy and then worked in the public schools but always loved working with the kids with autism and there weren't very many back then that was in the mid-80s and weren't very many diagnosed but all the ones in the school district that they had I worked with And then I had children of my own and decided just to go purely into autism. And then 10 years after I got my master's, when my children were kind of young, I went back and got my PhD in educational psychology and started doing just autism work. I think that's a good path. I like that. And we're we're very happy that you have because I think the world is better because of that. So I, I know that... When I was in medical school, and granted, it was just after Hippocrates started uh, putting together a few things, uh, mm-hmm. we, ne- we never discussed autism. It wasn't in any of our books. <clears throat> it was never part of a differential diagnosis for us. Please give us a definition of autism uh, so that uh, we can work with this throughout the rest of the show. And tell us maybe a little bit about how it arrived. So interestingly, autism for a long time was considered a low incidence disability and not too many people even knew what it was. And I, it seemed like about, well, to give you a little bit of background, in 1943 was the first time the term was coined. Autism was coined by Leo Kanner. And before that, people just sort of thought the kids were had some kind of mental illness. They were not sure why. There were a lot of weird theories like parent. Some theories said the parents caused it, but they were kind of referred to as childhood schizophrenia. Then when Leo Kanner described these children that had kind of common characteristics, the word autism became used. And back then he described three characteristics. One was difficulties with communication. One second was difficulty socializing. And the other was kind of restricted interest. So they weren't really interacting with items or interacting the way other people would. They had a tendency to engage in things repetitively, or maybe if they had some verbal language, they might talk about one thing for lengthy periods of time. So for a really, really long time, those three areas were pretty much how autism was diagnosed. And they had a lot of subcategories. The most common one people hear about is Asperger syndrome. And Asperger is just pretty much of a mild form of autism. They don't really have the language delays per se, but they still have difficulty communicating, socializing, and they usually have restricted interests. So, but last year, the psychiatric, American Psychiatric Association combined the categories. Now their kids are diagnosed by two categories. One is social communication. So those two were combined. And the second is restricted interests. And then they have a severity level. So individuals diagnosed with autism now, they don't have all the different subtypes. 
which used to be five, now it's one. Um, they are just diagnosed as far as severity level. So a, a level one means they have sort of mild support needs and level three means they more significant support needs. So they might need more intervention and more one-on-one and things like that if they're a level three. And if they're a level one, it's more on the mild end. Okay. What? So what? when we hear about autism spectrum disorder, you've mentioned autism, you've mentioned Asperger's, uh, and are there any others that we look at now, or is it down to just the two of them? It's actually, Asperger is out now, so now it's just autism spectrum disorder. So there's okay. just one now, and I, I think people still use the term Asperger because everybody is sort of familiar with what it is. So I think people colloquially or just in everyday life will refer to individuals with Asperger. And there are societies and things where um, there are people that have Asperger that have created groups and things like that. But as far as diagnosing, it's only going to be the one category, the autism spectrum disorder. Okay. And we're going to get into diagnosis uh, in a few minutes. Uh, have they come up with a cause of autism? Not really. That's the big area. Right now, they are feeling like it's multiple causes, and that makes sense because the people are just so different. I mean, on one end of the continuum, you have a small percentage of individuals that never learn how to use expressive communication, so they never learn how to talk which is actually an area we've done a lot of work on. And now most people with autism do learn how to talk now that we've developed some methods that are really more helpful than we had in the past. But we still have a small percentage of children that never learn how to use verbal expressive communication all the way to the other end of the continuum where we have a lot of college students, people that have done really well in school and now they're in college and they more have social difficulties and maybe some restricted interests. So there's a huge range, which is why people are thinking it's more than one cause. And even the people that work purely on genetics are kind of finding that even if they find one thing that looks promising, they can't really replicate it. So we're feeling like there's probably a lot of different causes for the disability. Yeah, and I know there's some controversy uh, about certain things in the environment uh, that people talk about with, uh, you know, some of the plastics, some of the pesticides, some of the vaccines. But I also know that, uh, you know, there's been many studies on this. And as of around 2010, none of the clinical studies have been able to link autism with any of the vaccines or the pesticides. Although I think, as you say, we certainly have to look at genetics and we have to look at environment, which includes the environment inside of the uterus, not only outside in the world. So we'll continue to keep looking for that. But as of yet, we really have no specific links. Uh, Do you agree with that? Yes, I agree. There's not really any specific links. They found a few studies where there's significant differences. But when you look at statistics, significant difference may not mean that it's the cause. It just may may mean that it's linked and the higher probability. So they've looked at some things like parents' ages. I even read one recently that was grandfather's ages. So there's sort of maybe a slight link with that. But I think there's more of a feeling that there might be some basically genetic predisposition. It probably has something to do with genetics because there's much, many more boys than girls that are that have the disability, and identical twins tend to both have it. 
So there are some suggestions that maybe there might be a genetic link. And it seems to be a little more common in, in the families if they have one. There's a little bit slightly pro- higher probability that they might have a second child with autism or with some kind of disability. So I think people are feeling like there's probably some genetic link. It's something that's not obvious because we haven't been able to find it, or they, I should say, I do more treatment research, but that people haven't really been able to find it. And like I said, most people are saying it's probably the autisms. There's probably more than one reason, and it might just be sort of a genetic predisposition that something environmentally may exacerbate. So we're going to talk now, usually the way this happens, how does, tell us how somebody finds out that their child has autism. What's the, what's the process that people go through? I mean, the way I look at it, uh, usually it's the parents that are recognizing that <clears throat> their child is not progressing the way all their friends, children of the same age are progressing. They're noticing things here and there. Tell us how the parents find out about it, how they should look for it. Well, it's interesting that you should mention parents, because if we look at the literature, the parents are really the first ones that report that they knew very early on that something was not quite right. And a lot of times parents will say, I knew it four or five months. And we've actually had some parents that brought their children in it three or four or five months that are just sort of noticing that there's something not right. And it tends to happen more frequently if it's their second child. If it's the first one, you don't really have a lot to compare with. But usually, no matter first or second child, it really is the parents that have a gut feeling at the very beginning. And sometimes that gut feeling kicks in when the children are, you know, 12, 14, 15 months, and they aren't using any verbal communication. And some, excuse me, and sometimes It's earlier when they're just not feeling like their child's giving them good eye contact or maybe they're trying to play peekaboo with their child and their child just isn't reacting like with happiness or engagement. So really it's the parents that kind of have that first gut feeling in general and that's why it's so important that we work with the pediatricians because a lot of pediatricians over the years have been taught you know, being another a mother myself, I know how nice it was when I would worry about everything and the pediatrician would just say, calm down, it's okay. But mm-hmm. it is true if the, if the parents are expressing that, you know, my child isn't talking or they're not engaging with me to just get them referred. And I think more and more pediatricians are doing that now, realizing that early intervention is so important and we can do so much in those early months and early years. So really, it's the parents first. And and then also we get some of the more mild kids picked up in kindergarten and preschool. Maybe in preschool, they're learning at home and kind of talking a little to their parents. So there's nothing really significant that the parents has, that the parents are noticing. But around when they get into preschool, the preschool teachers maybe notice that they're not really too interested in the other children, or they might be playing with the same toy over and over again, or maybe have some behavior issues that are interfering with their learning and socialization. So it can get, um, we can get referrals from a lot of those different sources. You know, I think it, it, it's really important. You brought up a few uh, details that I think I want to focus on for a moment. Uh, the first question that I have about this is, how old is the earliest that you may pick something up? The second question is, how important is early intervention and what does it do for us? 
Well, those are really great issues and very hot topics right now. So first of all, all of the literature says that autism can be reliably diagnosed at 18 months. But newer literature is coming out showing that you can see early symptoms of autism spectrum disorder within the first year of life. And our youngest child that we've worked with was four months. And we have a referral right now from a child that's even, I think she's two or three months. And in that first, those first years of life, I mean, there's a wide range of sort of um, engagement levels in infants. But what we're seeing with the infants that later are diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder is that they might be more interested in toys than people. So if you have a little object that you're showing the child, like a mobile or something like that, or a little toy, they might spend a long time staring at the toy or the ceiling fan or something like that. And then if you say, hi, you know, the parent usually says, goody, goody, goo, or hi, or, you know, tries to play with them, they take a, either don't engage, they keep staring at the item, or they may take a really long time to disengage and then look at the parent. And it's not like, minutes, but it's many, many seconds, which usually typical children pretty much are way more interested in people and their parents and um, other adults than they are in items. And then we don't see this level of affect that we see with typical children. So what we're seeing is that when we try to engage them in games like peekaboo or tickle or just go, you know, just smile at them and say, good to go. And, you know, most Typical children will give a big smile and they'll look you straight in the eye. And children that look either or later diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder seem to kind of just um, kind of have flat affect. They're not really looking real engaged. And sometimes they look engaged for a few activities, but not for very many activities. So we just um, published an article showing that we developed a treatment called Pivotal Response Treatment. It goes by PRT for short, Pivotal Response Treatment. And it was developed based on the evidence-based interventions that were used previously that weren't real fun for the kids. Most of them were kind of drill and they'd sit the kids down and for hours and hours and hours drill them with the hopes of catching up. And it took a really long time and the kids didn't like it that much. They really tried to avoid the session. They didn't look like they were having fun and even the teachers and therapists didn't look like they were having fun if you looked at them doing the intervention. So we were thinking there's got to be some way to make this more fun for the children. So we started developing these motivational procedures where we did things like using items that the kids enjoyed. We call that child choice or following the child's lead. And we'd vary the task a lot so we didn't drill them over and over again. And if they did something wrong, we didn't say no. We'd say could try if they're trying. So it may encourage them. And then we'd um, use a lot of maintenance tasks. So we'd intersperse things that they could already do well with things that were new tasks. And then we tried to get these natural rewards. So instead of giving them arbitrary reward, rewards that weren't related to the task, we started incorporating these natural rewards. So in the old days, you saw people using a lot of food treats. So they'd have a picture card and they may say, what shape is this? And if the child's at circle, they'd say, great, and give, an, give them an M&M. Or they'd hold up a color card and say, what color? And if the child said blue, they'd give them a Frito. 
And we realized that if we held up the M&M, since they really liked the M&M, and said, what color is this? And they said red and gave them the M&M, it would be part of the task. So it was kind of, in a sense, a natural reinforcer. So it was part of the task. And we found that the children learned a lot faster and enjoyed it. And it was kind of like the way typical children learn things. You don't sit down with typical children and drill and drill and drill. You just incidentally kind of teach them things. So we found that was really effective and the children learned faster and the parents had higher affect. They were enjoying it more. The teachers had higher affect. And so it was win-win for everybody. The children did less avoidance and less disruptive behavior. So we tried to look at some of those components and say, could we alter them a little bit to work with children in the first year of life? So what we did is obviously they're not talking yet. So we took some of the components that might affect their affect. And we looked at all the activities the parents did with them. And maybe they do 20, 30 different activities. And the kids maybe only showed positive affect with two or three. So what we decided to do is take those two or three and just have the parents work on those and get the children's affect up because they were seeming to enjoy those, the infants, were smiling and showing more engagement. So we would rotate through those few activities. And then we started interspersing some of the other activities. And we found that we could really get a good head start. We could get the kids to become more social early in that first year of life. So we're looking at autism is potentially a severe disability for many children. Some of them do develop communication, but for some children, it can be a severe disability. They may not learn to talk. And in the old days, when I started, only 50% learned to talk. But now with our methods, we can get about 95% to learn how to use verbal communication. And so they're um, more engaged within um, if we start within the first three years of life. So this early stuff that we're doing with infants is really new. It's, it's preliminary, but it's looking really promising that we might be able to get some of that social stuff, get some intervention for that social stuff really early on. And if we have infants that are really social, we have the wind at our back. That's beautiful. And by the way, I love your impersonations of a mother playing with a child. <laughs> you can tell I'm around babies a lot. Yeah. She's been good. there and she's done that. She's still yeah. immersed in it. <laughs> uh, one of one of the things that I think is really important, and we talk about early intervention, uh, helpful being helpful, is that sometimes parents may see something going on, but may not want to accept the fact that there's anything wrong with their super child, nor do they want to have um, a stigma put on them with a name or a label or a title. What would you say? to parents right now so that they can get through that process? Because I have a feeling that that prevents a lot of people from taking them to their doctor and getting that early intervention. So what would you say as an expert to the parents to help them figure that out? I totally understand how parents feel because it is really stressful when anything is wrong with your child. You know, being a parent myself, every parent has things that happen with their children and it's really stressful and at that old saying that you're only as happy as your saddest child is true and it's really oh. stressful and it is very stressful for parents to think you look up autism on the internet and unfortunately a lot of 
things that are on the internet focus on the negatives and not on the positives that are that the children with autism bring. So, but what I would say to parents is, I agree 100%. I don't think it's necessary to label a child when they're really young. It is scary. But if there's anything that looks a little different, think of it as far as symptoms. Don't think of it as, oh, my child has a syndrome, this disorder. I think early on, you can just think about it as my child isn't talking, so they need some intervention in this area. My child doesn't laugh when I try to play with him or her, so we might need to work on this. My child isn't engaging with me. And unfortunately, sometimes labels are helpful to get insurance coverage and things like that. But really, it is confidential. Nobody is able, uh, psychologists, speech therapists, anybody that works with your child is completely confidential. We can work on the symptoms and nobody really needs, you don't need to announce it. Some people have the opposite. They feel like they want to talk to their friends. They want to have everybody know and things like that. But many parents just would like to keep that confidential and and that's perfectly fine. And we can just focus on what we can do to help those areas. And we, at our center, we focus a lot on parent education. So what we do is we will show the parents how to work with their children and we actually have them work with their children and give them feedback on these specialized areas so they can work on it all day long. And the kids improve really quickly when we provide opportunities all day long, when the parents provide opportunities all day long. And and we try to do it in their natural routine so they don't have to feel like, oh, I've got to take away time from my other child or I've got to cook dinner and I don't have time to work with my child, we try to make it in their regular routine so everything that they do as a household naturally just can create opportunities within those everyday routines for intervention. So we try to make it really naturalistic, but a lot of opportunities. And our goal is for the children to catch up. We've every year more and more children recover completely from their symptoms, so they don't see any, we don't see any symptoms. And since we work at a university, we can have our goal to be 100% of the children just function at a, a level that's typical and, you know, with also keeping some of those strengths because a lot of times people don't realize strengths. Like we might have a child that knows all their alphabet letters when they're two or three years old or knows all their numbers. They might not have as easy a time with social communication, but they have some real strengths. So sometimes we can work in those areas and have children by the time they're in kindergarten reading books to the rest of the class. So there are a lot of times when we can take some of their strengths and really, you know, a lot of people don't understand that if a child is diagnosed with an intellectual disability, they're usually kind of flat across the board in all areas. But with autism, they usually have more deficits in this communication area, but their nonverbal areas are usually relatively high compared to their verbal areas. So really, they many of them have a ton of great strengths in these nonverbal areas, and we can use these to really excel them in a lot of areas. And like I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of college students that are taking graduate courses when they're undergrads in physics and math and and lots of different areas. So really by focusing on their strengths, it, it can make a big difference for these individuals. When you, when we watched uh, Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise in Rain Man, uh, well, I, I seem to remember thinking he was a savant. Uh, was he really autistic? 
Um, he, they actually did a pretty good portrayal of a person with autism. And back in those days, like Dustin Hoffman, they, they were mostly, or like the character he played, they were mostly institutionalized. In fact, almost all individuals with autism were institutionalized by adolescents. And now we would have completely different ways of working with them because you could see some of those strengths could be really used to benefit society. I mean, when we think about all the people that supposedly had autism, like Einstein and all these geniuses, so many of them, you know, are really, really take their strengths. And and interestingly, if you look back at some of that early work of um, Leo Kanner, where he in 1943, when he did a follow-up study where he looked at some of the adults to see how they were doing. And the ones that had jobs and were productive and doing well were the ones that used their area of strength, which was sort of considered a restricted interest, as a career. So that's kind of what we do. Like, for example, if we have somebody that's really interested in trains, let's say, as a child, and all they want to do is play with trains. And a lot of times they develop a lot of information about trains, we'll develop a train club at their school and get all the kids interested in some fun train activities. And then usually the individual with autism is the valued member of the club because they know more than anybody else. And in <laughs> fact, we've got a lot of clubs going on at, um, at at the middle school and the high school. And usually they get voted for, cl- for the club president because they're so great <laughs> at whatever the topic That's is. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Do uh, do parents that speak different languages, does it, you, we talk about social skills and language skills. If a child is coming from a family where one uh, parent speaks one language and the other speaks another and they're trying to teach them both, is, does that have any effect on autism? Is that something that we need to look at or is that just two languages? The jury's kind of out on that, and I think that a lot of people have opinions about it. I can tell you my opinion. It's not based on any real um, data, but I myself haven't seen a big problem with having two languages. In fact, I have a lot of kids I work with that are really fluent in two languages. I actually worked with one child one time that spoke fluent Russian and could write Russian and self-taught himself. Russian, so self-taught himself, taught himself, (laughs) and um, so you can tell I'm a a speech therapist, right? (laughs) Right, right. language um, skills, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but you know, I I think I have a lot of families that I work with, even are monolingual. Like, for example, we have some families that are monolingual Spanish speakers. And the parents want to be able to communicate with their children. So we try to keep some of that language intact because we do a lot of parent ed, but then they go to school and most of the services are in English. But I haven't found a big problem with having two languages. I think there's a lot of people that feel like they're having trouble learning one language. So why teach them a second? It could be really confusing. So that's the other side of the coin. A lot of people will tell parents, oh, they're having trouble learning one label for an item. Why teach them two labels for an item? But I think Mm -hmm. the jury's out on that. There's not really, as of yet, there's not a lot of good evidence to show that it's a big problem teaching them more than one language. But I have to say, it is not even in the autistic community. It's in the average community that's out there that says, oh, no, you'll confuse them if they learn more than one language. 
I mean, this yeah. is the only country that thinks that way, I do believe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they have to speak English, right? Right. <laughs> but I would think, because um, I know uh, in Canada, they, uh, my, I have a nephew that, was aut- that is autistic. And, um, and sadly to say, it was one of those situations where nobody wanted to pay heed to the fact that there was something a little off about this child. A lovely child, a lo- just a, a beautiful little individual that you know didn't really relate and loved to eat, so the family was very happy about that. <laughs> but uh, it was only when he reached, like I, I do believe, grade kindergarten or grade one, when the teacher finally said, you know, I think you may want to look into this. And they finally moved him to a school that, uh, you know, was for autistic children. And they did so much of their work through play and music. The music was tremendous. The way he just excelled through the instruments, the sounds, and it was magnificent to see. I mean, now he holds down two jobs and he's going for his accounting degree now, but you know, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> you know, but he could play chess brilliantly at three years old. Oh, wow. So well, um, the strengths that you talk about are yeah, just fascinating. And I also have a nephew with autism and I was doing this many, many, many years before he was born. And oh, it's oh. interesting because when he was really little, he wasn't, he didn't say any words at two and a half. He was completely nonverbal. Well, actually, once in a while, he'd say a word out of context, but never on command or on demand. And um, but one thing that I noticed about him was was really interesting is he when we first tried to teach him how to talk instead of using disruptive behavior to communicate, he'd get really mad and he'd take the toys and he'd throw them. And he had this one favorite toy that had about 12 pieces and it had all these ramps that the balls rolled down and it was his favorite thing. And I try to get him to say ball in order to get the ball to put it down the ramp. And he loved that toy. But when he was first learning words and didn't understand that he had to talk for stuff and he wouldn't get it if he cried, he would get really frustrated and he'd take that ramp toy and he'd throw it down and it would go into like 12 or 14 pieces. But I noticed that he would put it together so quickly. And I realized, gosh, this kid is really smart. If he can, I I would have had to get out the instruction book, but he would put it together so quickly. And so we really worked hard and his parents were amazing. And his grandparents and everybody around worked so hard. And now he's in the gifted program. He's in elementary school and he excels in school. Mm. And it was just a matter, you know, you think somebody two and a half years old, the odds are again, without talking, no talking at two and a half, the odds are kind of against them. Mm. But you know, with so many strengths and so many, that ability to put things together, those nonverbal strengths, it was just really a matter of getting his communication up mm-hmm. for him to become. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of similar to your nephew. Yes, yes. And we, we did an episode on Trinity of Life. This is another show that we have, and I think is episode 70. And it's called Creating a Balanced Environment for Children. And this lovely woman, Sandy Bothmer, who, who her her goal is to, and her vision is always to be able to create balance for children in the classrooms, at home. And she was saying that she works with uh, several children who don't communicate verbally. And it's private. And she works with them one stage at a time. And she teaches them yoga. Hmm. And now, I, I do believe he's a young teen. And now he actually communicates through the yoga poses. 
Wow, that's so amazing. So he's starting to speak verbally, but he speaks of the yoga poses and how he moves forward in his life. We're yeah, just like, wow. <laughs> you know? Yes, and um, communication, as you're pointing out, doesn't necessarily mean you have to use words. There's a lot of different ways to communicate. There's a lot of great uh, in, um, augmentative devices. We always try to look for alternative ways to communicate. The iPads have great methods. And we mm. use pictures sometimes. So communication is so important, whether you're verbal or not. Our, a lot of our research has been working on making the, um, working on verbal skills, verbal expressive language to talk. But there's also other ways, like you're pointing out, that people can communicate. And, and you know, that's just as important, too, as to have everybody to have a communication system. Mm-hmm. And I also think another thing that's important that you pointed out was is the fact that in the old days, people hardly ever left their house if they had a child with autism, if their children were at home, or maybe they institutionalized them and they never really got to do community things. And I think it's so important that they expose them to language and communication and, I mean, sorry, to other activities like um, music and art, because a lot of these kids really do excel in those areas. And I have all over our building here, we have artwork that one of our students did. He's a um, he's an adult now, but we started working with him when he was a preschooler. And one of our clinicians happened to be an artist. And I said, oh, you know, I'd listed three kids that I thought maybe might really enjoy art. And two of them weren't that into it, but the third one was. And now he makes a living by selling his artwork. And he's been all over the world. And He's just amazing. He has exhibits everywhere, and, you Mm. know, he's quite a talented artist. Mm. Lovely, lovely. It's interesting. I, too, have a nephew uh, that has been put somewhere on the spectrum, and it's wonderful to watch him improving with uh, treatments, both from parents and, you know, the community, et cetera. Whenever I speak to him on the phone now, we found that math, seems to be something that he really is good at. So I start giving him problems and we talk about math and sometimes I give him problems that he has the answer to before I've actually figured it out. <laughs> I know, you know. I've, I've been humiliated a number of times <laughs> with our kids. Yeah, so I will leave that. So we're going to uh, now move toward uh, diagnostics. And, and before we get into the actual diagnostics, I want to know... As we uh, asked you before, if you had anything to say to the parents about moving forward, there are the the pediatricians and the child psychologists and the behaviorists all know about uh, autism, but there may be other primary care doctors that don't necessarily have all of the skills when it gets to the higher level. Is there anything you would say to the doctors that may come in contact with a child where the parents are saying something? And because they're not that up for it, they they may just say, oh, don't worry about it. Is there anything you'd like to say as a specialist and an, and an authority in this field to some of the physicians that may be listening today that they should take heed? I think, you know, it's, I think one of the challenges with pediatricians, and my oldest daughter is a pediatrician, so I kind of know from the inside out that, you know, they've been kind of forced, as all medical doctors have been in recent years, to kind of be in and out with the patient very quickly. They don't spend a lot of time with, the, with, the, with their patients, and it's not their fault. 
but it's just the way our society has created the situation, insurance companies and things. So one, what I think happens a lot of times is the pediatricians will come in to see the child and they may not say anything and be a little nervous, but that may look like typical um, behavior of a child that's afraid. Because a lot of times, you know, they associate the doctor with maybe the um, shots or whatever. So I, I think there's kind of two things. One is to listen to the parents. Ask the parents, you know, do you have any concerns about your child's development? Do, do they play, are they interested in other children? Do they play with lots of different toys? Just a few questions may be helpful for the parents. And if the parents express any concern... Like, you know, I'm not really sure. He seems a little less interested than the other kids. Just get an evaluation. It doesn't take long to get an evaluation. Just send them to a specialist. And you and we found that pediatricians oftentimes don't like to use the word autism because it's scary to parents. They don't have to say uh, autism. All they have to say is just, you know, you might want to get your child's communication checked. And just send them along if it looks like they're having any issues at all. And then um, I think the second thing is if if they do have time to just spend a little bit of time watching the child and looking to see is the child interacting with the parents? Are they playing with the same toy in a repetitive manner? Are they are they smiling? Are they taking an interest in the adults? I think that's really helpful because we just because we know how important early intervention is. It's and then if if they're over a year, maybe over 12, 14 months and not really starting to say any words socially, like even mama or dada or not pointing to things, then I think, you know, it might look like it's a little bit more than just a language delay. They might want to um like with autism, they don't usually point at things and they won't usually look what we call joint attention so like they might typical kids will look at an item then back at their parents and look at an item and back at their parents to kind of share their pleasure about an item and children with autism don't really do that so it's a little bit more than a straight language communication delay if they're having sort of these other behavioral symptoms and so I would say if they're noticing anything like that it's just if they send them to a specialist they can get some help early and most of the really early intervention programs have a parent education component. So the parents can just learn procedures, how to work with their children, and we just want to catch the children up. Excellent. Uh, so let's talk now. You mentioned the fact that most people think when they go to the doctor, it's about shots and blood and all these things. What is the process of the actual diagnostic workup. You have a child that you bring to your pediatrician. Your pediatrician agrees based on some of the things that you're telling them and what they're seeing that a workup should be done to determine what's going on. What is the diagnostic workup? How long does it take? Is it covered by insurance? Uh, yes, usually the insurance companies will cover an evaluation. And if not, there's usually state programs that'll cover it, the school district or some states have sort of regional centers, they call them, that will pay for services. So even families that don't have insurance can get an evaluation covered. And there's a couple ways you can do it. Some people that have experience with autism will just sort of look at the child, watch them, play with them, and do some informal evaluations and and 
look at their behavior. That's a lot what it is, looking at these different categories of behavior and see how they're doing in these areas. And then there's a lot of standardized tests that can be used. There are a lot of standardized language tests. There's some standardized tests for autism that have things that you do with children and they're if they respond a certain way, you can um, tell if they have autism. And then there's a lot of parent measures where they'll ask the parents to talk about some of their developmental histories and, and some of their behaviors. So there is a pretty comprehensive way we can evaluate a child and see if they're exhibiting these symptoms of autism and where they kind of fall. Now, remembering autism is a spectrum. So you have every end of the spectrum to the middle where it gets a little vaguer where the children are maybe a little bit more mild and it's kind of there's a lot of overlapping disabilities sometimes a significant language delay might look a little bit like autism because they might have some social difficulties if they're not communicating very well so i think there it gets a little sometimes in the middle can be a little wishy-washy but but if they have the symptoms, the important thing is to work on those symptoms and not let them slide. Like even if they're in the middle where it's sort of, they're borderline, they have some mild symptoms. If it, if worked with in the proper way, they can, all the children can improve. But if they don't get intervention, sometimes something that's a that's mild can snowball into something big. So it's really important. If And like any child, even typical child, every parent knows that any child is going to have some things. I mean, my youngest daughter had really severe hearing ear infections, and that caused a lot of problems for a long period of time that affected her social when she was in preschool. And of course, when we got tubes put in, she was fine, but they put her on a lot of antibiotics. So, you know, every parent knows there's every there's things you have to work with with every child, and there's a, quite a few more if they have autism spectrum disorder, but working away at that, the children can improve. The One of the important things I think that parents should know, and I hope you agree with this, I'm sure you will, is that many times there can be an actual pathological uh, problem somewhere else that is presenting as symptoms like this, as you just mentioned, maybe a hearing deficit or something. So aside from the workup specifically that would relate to social skills, language skills, et cetera, a workup should probably also include to rule out things like infections or certain, maybe a, a brain tumor or other kinds of diseases as part of the workup. It's not just about figuring out the language skills. Yeah, we we actually usually have a comprehensive workup. And hearing impairment is one of those things, you know, kids get a lot of middle ear infections and mm -hmm. they're easy to, you know, to get rid of through antibiotics, but I have in my life seen a few kids. And when I worked in the public schools, I had some children that had no real medical care and they had this lingering ear infection that presented itself like autism because they can't hear. And they so they'd sort of engage in some repetitive behaviors and not socialize. So, you know, really hearing impairment, actually most parents or many parents, I should say, of children with autism first suspect a hearing impairment because mm -hmm. their children seem like they're not being very responsive to them. And so that's something that usually is something that gets checked out very early is the hearing impairment. But it's interesting with autism, they might not respond to their parents 
trying to interact with them. But if you unwrap the candy, even in the other side of the room, they might huh. turn around real quickly and, <laughs> because they, so they, they it really is a behavioral problem, not a physiological problem, but it is true that we like to rule out any other physiological problem like hearing impairment that could, I mean, little children, if they're hurting because they have ear infections, you'll see them sometimes banging their head on the crib and things like that. So, and they won't develop if they can't hear, they're not going to develop communication as they should. So some of those things should really be checked out. But, um, but, but autism, you know, we do like to rule out hearing impairment and other things that may have similar symptoms. How long does it usually take for a workup to be done where a, a physician can then come to the parents and finally say, after our, our extensive workup, this is what we think your child has? Um, usually the physicians will refer them to a specialist, like a psychologist or somebody like that to do a workup for autism, um, speech therapists, a lot of people that specialize in autism. And really, you know, it, it sort of depends. Uh, we, we, if we do a whole battery of testing, it could take a couple of days. It, children get tired easily, so we don't do eight-hour days. We'll do testing for a few hours over a couple of different days. And, and then, um, but usually we can get a pretty good feel within, you know, a short period of time. Sometimes I'll see a child for an hour or two and I'll be able to write a list of symptoms that are concerning to me or um, kind of give the parents some advice on those symptoms pretty quickly. When you see a lot of children, you kind of get used to some of the symptoms and but um, if they want a comprehensive evaluation that in includes standardized tests, it could take several days. Mm -hmm. Does in terms of the disorder itself, does do you see? And let's say someone either you can answer this both ways: whether someone is has actually been diagnosed or not diagnosed and is under treatment or not under treatment. Does in the spectrum can someone? over time, outgrow it? Can they be cured from it? Can it change? Can they regress? Can, can certain other things happen? They go, can they go from one end of the spectrum to the other? Or once they have one portion of the spectrum, is that where they stay? Long question. Um, there's a lot of answers to that. We pretty much know from the days when children were put in institutions that without intervention, they most likely will get worse. So they don't usually, if they have autism spectrum disorder, they don't usually outgrow it. And then there is a little bit of self-motivation involved because I do have some college students that I'm working with now that have told me that they really try to look at what other people are doing and really try to figure out things that they can imitate and things that they can do to really help themselves. And They've done really, really well. And so I think it, it, at a certain point, there's some self-motivation, and we have developed a lot of actual self-management programs. So even though maybe somebody doesn't feel totally comfortable in social situations, we try to teach them things that they can do. Like when you go to a, an event or a party or even just a small group function, here are some things that you can do. You can go up to people and smile and say hello and shake their hands and say, you know, introduce yourself and ask a question. So asking questions we found is interesting because it's kind of low in the repertoire of people on the autism spectrum. But asking a question 
can get the other people talking. It can, it feel, makes you feel like they're empathetic and are interested in you. So a lot of individuals, if we teach them these procedures, they can decide to go out there and use them and they can sort of self do, you know, they need guidelines for the particular behaviors and how to use them in maybe a, like we might have them come in and work on them. But then we, if they go out there and actually use those in everyday situations, they can really help themselves. So there is a certain point in time where, especially for like social and things like that, where it's a lot of it is, is self using the techniques and making that effort to work on them yourself. Uh, before we get into treatments, which I definitely want to get into right now, I just have a quick question on the brain. Have they done any studies, MRIs or any other studies to show that there's something in the brain, like we're learning, for example, with Alzheimer's and amyloid uh, deposits. Is there anything in the brain that's coming up that they're seeing that's more prevalent in a child with autism spectrum disorder? That's actually an interesting question because there is some promising work in that area. And Yale University just did a study where they took some children with autism spectrum disorder, and they used our technique, pivotal response treatment. And then they did some pre-MRIs and some post-MRIs, and they um, found that the, there were structural changes in the brain that made their brains look more typical in areas that look like they have some problems um, with children with autism. So there is some promising work going on, but more importantly, it looks like if we do some of the treatments like pivotal response treatment, that it can result in some positive brain changes. So that's some exciting work. And we um, are planning in the future of doing some collaborative work with other universities to try to look at this and see if we can make these structural changes in the brain. So that that's a very promising area. So let's talk. Uh, excellent. I'm glad to hear that. I read an article where they saw that the brain changed and became bigger more quickly. So that was one of the signs that they were starting to look at or think about but I don't know. That may be a little bit early. Let's talk about treatments. Aside from the treatments that you've spoken about, including your treatment of pivotal response treatment or therapy and lots of social skills and language skills, are there any other things that can be done? Is there a surgery that can be done? Are there medications? What are your thoughts on all of the antidepressants and antipsychotics and anti-anxiety and things like that, treatments for ADD? What are your thoughts on that? Well, at this point in time, the research will tell us that there are no medications that really improve those core target areas of autism. So, for example, communication. You can't take a pill and learn how to talk. Or socialization. You can't take a pill and learn how to talk. So there's a couple of issues related to this. Number one is that the behavioral techniques are panning out. So if you do the blood, sweat, and tears and really work with the kids, they'll do better. Unfortunately, we see from very young ages, a lot of times the children, if they're not causing a problem, they won't get the attention they need. So if they're in preschool or elementary school or middle school or high school and are off by themselves or go in the library and read the whole lunch period and never interact with the other kids or walking the perimeter of the playground, but don't cause any problems, a lot of times they're ignored. Now, this is really bad because 
We know that children that don't know how to socialize will have problems as adults across the board. It doesn't matter what disability they have. If they're not socializing, they're not, they're probably going to have difficulties as an adult. So unfortunately, the way our society is set up is a lot of times we have our least trained, sort of least skilled people out at the playground, whereas the most skilled people, like people that have graduate degrees, like teachers and specialists, work with them in the classroom. So I think what we need, what parents need to do is if, even if their child doesn't have a language delay, if they're having social problems, they really need a specialized program on the playground. So whether it's through an IEP or some kind of program at school, a lot of schools are now setting up like activities that the kids like game rooms in middle schools or PAL clubs, um, clubs where they can interact, circle of friends, things like that, which is great. Every school needs to do that. So if you're a parent or a teacher and noticing there's a child in your class or a child or your own child is not really socializing the way you would like them to, that's really important that you get in there to the school and have them get a specialist out there that you work at home, collaborate to work at home, have the teacher tell you children that they're, that your child gets along with, increase the play dates, have them engage in after school activities. And like I said, have an active program at school. So that's really important. Now, having said that, around adolescence, depending on the study that you read, some studies say small percent and some say a large percent. But if you average the studies out, maybe about half of adolescents and adults will develop some kind of what we call a comorbid disability, which means it's just something that goes along with the with the main disability. And usually that's either depression or anxiety. Now, this is a little bit different than an than some of the depression and anxiety that an adult might get that's not had that their whole life, but starts getting it later on. This is something that's actually related to their difficulties with the commun- social communication. So what happens is because they're having a little trouble socializing, and then they might try to hang out with some other children in the middle school or the high school, and they might maybe say things that are a little embarrassing, or maybe they're watching cartoons when the other kids are doing, watching, you know, some more sophisticated t- show or, or something like that, or they don't know what twerky is or whatever it is. <laughs> but so they may maybe um, seem a little off, and then they get teased and bullied. Bully, being bullied is a lot higher among kids with autism. They get mm-hmm. bullied and victimized a lot more than typical kids. There are typical kids do get bullied and teased by their peers. That's not to say that it doesn't go on at all. But if you look at the literature, it's a lot higher among people with autism spectrum disorder. So this may cause them to withdraw even more and feel more anxious and feel more depressed because they don't have friends, pretty much. Mm-hmm. If you a lot of times people think that because the children are alone all the time, they want to be alone. But if we look at the literature where they've asked people that are verbal that have autism spectrum disorder that can talk about it, they ask them, do you want to have friends? Do you want to have an intimate relationship? Almost all of them report that they do. It may be challenging, but they report that they do want to have friends and intimate relationships. 
So what we've been finding, we just actually published in our, well, that's actually in press. It'll be coming out in the next few months. Um, We found that if we work on helping, getting them a safe group of friends that can do stuff with them and also working a little bit on some of their social skills, not a lot, it maybe takes an hour a week on their social skills, but then having them go to these clubs and do community events with support people that'll be there to help them that are peers. So it's not like my age person going with a college student, but with college mm-hmm. student going with a college student or my age person going with someone my age, that mm-hmm. we that it actually decreases their impre- uh, depression, improves their happiness, and improves their feelings of um, self-fulfillment and things like that. So really, if you look at what the real core problem is, is that they're feeling awkward and uncomfortable, and that causes some of these other difficulties. So if we can really target these social areas and get them really work with the typical peers who are wonderful with them. I mean, I can't say enough about these out there. There's just a huge group of adolescents and children and adults that are just really willing to help and give of themselves and really accepting. And if we can get them really helping them facilitate these social interactions, we see a huge improvement in lots of areas. And we've also seen a a huge improvement in employment. And really our ultimate goal is to have these people working because if if they're not socializing well and they're depressed and they're anxious, they're not going to be able to be contributing members of society. But if we can get them socializing well, it can make a huge difference. And for many of them, they can get jobs where before, because they were so depressed or anxious and had autism as an underlying problem, they weren't able to contribute to society. So it's really can make a huge difference for our whole society. And brings me to a little bit different point is the inclusion issue that we're really working toward more and more inclusion in regular ed classrooms, not taking the kids out of their natural environments, but trying to keep them in the natural environments. And even if they're a little bit behind in some areas like maybe reading comprehension or um, other areas that we can have them do partial participation, which means they do the same assignments as their typical peers, but at their own level. So let me give you a simple example. Let's say the children in the class are learning to add double digits like 10 plus 12, but the child with autism can only add single digits we have them maybe add zero plus two. So we take off the the tens column and just have them add the ones column. So what we're doing is we're having them doing the same activity, but at their own level. It's sort of like what you would do in a regular home. Like if you're loading up the dishwasher, if you have, you're not going to have the littlest preschooler not help clean off the table, but you're not going to give them your fine crystal. You're going to probably have them take the plastic dishes off or the spoons off or something that's not breakable, but you're still having them work within the family system so that they learn what they have to learn to live their life independently and to be part of the family. Same thing with children with autism. It's the same general concept as we're not going to exclude them and have a whole different environment and put them with other children that can't communicate with them. The goal is to really have them participate as if they did not have a disability. And there have been some recent studies that have come out that showed that the children that were in a segregated classroom for several years compared with children that were included in a regular ed classroom 
the children with autism that were included in the regular education classroom did better over time. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean that you just throw them in there because they won't do well. They have to have a really good goals, a really good support system. They have to be learning. If you just throw them in there, it's not going to work. But they have to have really good programs for social, really good programs for academics, really good programs for communication. But if you have those good programs going, they'll really do a lot better if they can be incorporated into everyday activities. And that's not just school. I mean, going to the grocery store, not having a tantrum, learning how to buy things and going to being part of clubs and after school activities or Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, if that's what their families like to do, karate, anything like that, that they like yoga, anything they like to do, just keeping them in activities. Because so often we see that because the children aren't communicating, maybe they're toilet trained a little bit later, maybe they're having some social difficulties that society often excludes them. Maybe they have some behavior problems, so their parents find it hard for them to take them to the grocery store or on a little outing and things like that. So instead of them having the rich social and enriched life that typical children do, sometimes the family's social circles kind of dwindle and their activities dwindle. So they're not getting exposure. And we know from a few tragic examples of children that were, you know, locked in basements and things like that, that are not exposed to effort to enriching experiences that they don't grow and they don't learn and they don't develop typically. So we really want children with autism to really be able to grow and be included in all these activities. And and part of it is something that we as a society have a problem with because we're not welcoming these families. We're not welcoming these children and there's so many of them. We need to learn how to work with the families and accept them and accept their strengths along with some of their challenges. And I think, you know, the fact that when we look at the stress literature, the parents' level of stress is so high when they have a child with autism. As soon as their child gets diagnosed, their stress, almost all of the family stress goes into the pathological levels. And it just seems like it's a sad state of society that a wonderful child has to be born to a family and this this tragic thing of the parents feeling these really high struggles of levels of stress has to happen. So I think we as a society really need to change and really need to make the families feel like these children are wonderful and a blessing as they are, not that not have it so that their social and activities dwindle. I just I just watched uh, another podcast on autism. And one of the counterintuitive things was parents wanted to, when the child was acting out, put them in a timeout. And actually, they said it's much more important to put them in a time in and bring them in and start hugging and loving them. We're speaking with Dr. Lynn Cagle, who's the clinical director of the Cagle Autism Center and the director of the Eli and Edith L. Broad Center for Asperger's Research at the University of California in Santa Barbara. And you have shared some great information with us today, and I'm hoping that you have a health tip for us. A health tip. Okay, let's see. Well, I have a health tip that relates to autism or any, probably any child, is really focus on your child's strengths and see what you can do with your child's strengths. Because, or I guess I could 
It doesn't have to be a child for anybody. Everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. And if we really focus on people's strengths instead of their weaknesses, we'd have a lot better society and our children would do a lot better. And probably our peers would do a lot better too if we focused on their strengths instead of their weaknesses. I love that. <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful to our very special guest, Dr. Lynn Cagle, for sharing her wisdom and experience with us and giving us a lot of good information and also a lot of hope for the future in the autism spectrum disorders. Uh, I would like to also thank my teachers and healers for helping me on my journey. And until next week, when we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, first, I would like to thank you, Dr. Lynn Cagle and Christina and Segovia and all of Yoga Hub. And until our next time together, I wish you all optimal health. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, Lynn. It's been such a pleasure. Uh, you, I, I believe this show has really lifted a lot of anxiety and fears for parents who might have uh, just uh, come to the knowledge that their child might be dealing with um, this imbalance and give them hope that um, there is uh, a lot a lot of wonderful doors to step through for the future of them, the family, really. Thank you, yes. <laughs> and of course, we'd like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us live on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. And please, we invite you to look forward to our 2014 new slate of productions that are coming through. And of course, we all thank Dr. Glenn Woolman. You can connect with him by following him on Twitter at Glenn Woolman. And of course, through his own site at glennwoolman.com, where you can learn about his metaphor square breath. You can also connect with our special guest, Dr. Lynn Cagle, at education.ucsb.edu forward slash autism or online.prthelp.com. Thank you so much for joining us, and give us a call. We'd love to hear your suggestions and feedback. Give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. Namaste.